before we do anything, let's do our memory verse for the whole series. Let's stand up and uh, read out loud together. Luke chapter 6, everyone's groaning, I love it. Oh, really? Really we have to do that? Okay, so I fixed it so it should be right. Okay, um, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Luke chapter 6, verse 43 through 45. All right, you can have a seat. I love the enthusiasm in that reading. I mean, that was just like, I mean, you could feel the presence of the Holy Spirit as we were reading through that. That was just, man, God is here right now. Um, so that's exactly what we're talking about. We want to be so full of Christ that out of the overflow of our lives, Christ pours out. Christ pours out of us in every interaction. Today we're looking at another habit. This is the fourth habit I think that we've covered. We talked about uh, Jesus' prayer life and seeking silence and solitude and time with the Father. We talked about Jesus' habit of going to synagogue, how it was his custom to go to synagogue and how that related to us and attending church on a regular faithful basis, that it's a commitment for us. We talked last week about worship and how Jesus worshiped the Father and how we worship the Father. And today we're gonna to look at community. And I know it's gonna feel like we're overlapping and we're covering a lot of the same material that we covered on synagogue, but this is actually something different than just coming to church on Sunday, and we'll make the case for that in just a minute. Now, I have a hard time asking for help. Does anyone else have a hard time asking for help? And the people who really have the hardest time won't raise their hand because they have such a hard time asking for help that they can't even raise their hand to ask about asking for help. So, um, I have a hard time asking for help, especially when it comes to the church. You know, and so since our, as, as a family, our most significant community, our most significant uh, family and relationships is all built around the church, and so every, every significant relationship we have as a family is tied to this church. We have, we have our you know, blood family, uh, but, but our, our significant connections and relationships are in this church. And so when it comes to asking for help, I have a hard time asking for help for a few reasons. For one, I feel like I'm asking a lot on a regular basis. I feel like I'm asking people to do things for the church or people to read their Bibles or people to pray or people to help someone or people to do this or that or to serve in a ministry or to come to this event or to sign up for 24 hours of prayer or go to lunch after the service or sign up for a Bible reading plan. You know, it feels like I'm asking people for a lot on a regular basis, and so I have a hard time then asking for someone to do something for me. Second, I also, and I know I've heard this not just for myself, but I figure that there are probably others in the church that could use help more than I could, and it would be better for the people of the church to help those who need the help more than I do than for me to ask for help. 
and this one just pertains uh, specifically to me, it feels like a conflict of interest and an abuse of power. So I feel like I could use my position as pastor, and I've known pastors who have done this, I could use my position as pastor to get people to do things for me by asking, uh, asking them to do it, and because I'm the pastor of this church, people would do it. So, so I have, I've always erred on the side of not asking for help. I just don't do it. But I think this is kind of a trend. This is, this, is a, this is normal for us in our culture. We tend not to ask for help, right? We, we tend to want to do things on our own. We want to do things with, on our own power, our own strength, on our own merit. We, if we do something, we want to be able to brag that we have done something or done that thing. We want to feel like we have earned the right to have done whatever it is. Where does that thinking come from? Because it's not in the Bible. One of our verses for today, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 through 6 says, Carry each other's burdens. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 2, or Galatians 6, verse 2 through 6. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. So we should carry our own load and we should carry one another's burdens. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. I felt led by the Spirit to include verse 6 in our reading today. But I think in, in our culture, we don't just have a hard time asking for help with projects around the house. I think when things get really seriously difficult in our life, when, when we really face struggles and challenges of one kind or another, we tend to want to fight the battles on our own. When, when we're going through the darkest, most difficult valleys of our lives, when we're going through the literal valley of the shadow of death, we want to walk through it on our own. And I don't know whether it's pride, I don't know whether it's embarrassment, I don't know if there's something that, that in us that says, well, we can't admit that we have a weakness or a fault, or we can't admit that we can't get through something on our own. But for one reason or another, we tend to fight our battles on our own, and the more difficult the tasks are, I think, the more reclusive we get about them. Why? Why do we do that? Why? Why do we act this way? Well, I think it's because of our individualism. Now, before we go on any further, we need to get our big idea out and our weekly identity statement. Our big idea for this week is this, and I invite you to write it down and ponder it as we talk this morning. Community isn't that thing I do on Sundays. It is how I am, who I am in Christ. I cannot be a Christ follower and not be in community. 
community isn't that thing I do on Sundays. That's how a lot of us think about it. That I do Sunday, and on Sunday, that thing I do is community, and that's all I need for being a Christ follower. But that's not what community is. That's not what it means to be a Christ follower. Community is how I am, who I am in Christ. We become who we are in Christ by who we are with. And I cannot be a Christ follower and not be in community. It's actually an oxymoron as you look at how Jesus lived his ministry to think we can do Christian life by ourselves. Our weekly identity statement is, I am in Christ. I am in Christ. Period. I am one in Christ with my Jesus family. But we live, yeah, I'm sorry, the bullet, the thing's in your way. You can stand up and walk around, do whatever you need to to read that. I am in Christ. I am one in Christ with my Jesus family. The reason I think we resist true biblical community, Christian community, disciple-minded community like Jesus set up and exemplified with his time here on earth is because of the individualistic nature of our country. In fact, um, you can go all the way back to the founding of our country and see that, there, that it was a part of even how we were established in the beginning. Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, he's got one of my other favorite quotes that I actually had framed in my office for a while, but that doesn't pertain to this morning. Well, it does. He, he said, anyone heard this? Um, America is great because America is good. Has anyone heard that? If America ever ceases to be good, she will also cease to be great. And so that's one of his most famous quotes. Um, but he named extremist individualism as the defining trait, which if left unchecked, would spell the abolition of humanity. Not just America, but humanity. Extremist individualism would destroy humanity. And uh, there's a bunch of studies about how this was a part of our culture from the very beginning, uh, starting with the 13 colonies. World War II brought the entire Western Hemisphere together as we fought a unified enemy, right? And so everyone kind of came together, and actually where the war was the worst in the unified allies, the rates of depression actually went down during the war and not up. And the reason they went down during the war was because of community and unity. That even though the world around them was literally going to hell in a handbasket and being destroyed as they sat there and watched their precious country being bombed day in and day out, the rates of depression went down because of their community and unity during the war. But since World War II, World War II everything has kind of been changing at an escalating pace. Since World War II, church attendance has been cut in half, literally cut in half since the end of the war in the 50s, where it reached its peak and then has been cut in half ever since. 
but it's not just in church attendance. There's a book called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. It's uh, a very boring book to read, but if you want to read a book about this topic, you can go check it out at the library. I checked it out and no one, there was no reservations, no one in line, no one wanted to read it, but yeah. Um, any and all forms of community that require commitment are actually declining and have been declining ever since World War II. This includes, the reason it's called, the book is called Bowling Alone is because of bowling leagues. People don't commit to bowling leagues anymore. They just go and bowl by themselves or when it's fun. But it's not just bowling leagues. It's not just church. It's also Elks Lodge, Moose Lodge, and Lions have been in consistent decline because no one wants to make that kind of commitment anymore. People don't want to commit to something. They want to be individuals. In the United States, rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. 35% of Americans report being chronically lonely. 8% report having a conversation with a neighbor. Only 8% report having a conversation with a neighbor over the previous year. 8 percent. In 1984, the average American had three confidants. Today, 25 percent of Americans have none. Former Surgeon General said, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. Yes, that's a good, good job. A Gallup poll says Americans are among the loneliest people in the world. Health problems are related to our loneliness. In fact, loneliness is worse than smoking 15 cigarettes a day, worse for you than smoking 15 cigarettes a day, has a greater impact on your lifespan than obesity, is tied to heart disease, dementia, anxiety, and depression. Loneliness is a serious problem today. We have the idea of community, but it's not real community because a lot of us have accepted fake community. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with social media, especially, and I tried to remember this where, where this study was, but I couldn't find it in time for the sermon. But there's actually a report that shows that um, how most of us use social media on, you know, Facebook is, is just, we're basically stalkers, right? We scroll through Facebook and stalk people. We never engage, we never interact, we don't like on the post, we don't comment on the post, we don't have any kind of interaction, and that actually can cause brain damage by, by having your brain or your mind stirred by a connection that you have, somebody that you have a relationship with, and then choosing not to respond in the most minuscule way damages your brain and how your brain responds to community, and we can at least, if we're going to be on social media, engage with one another and not damage our brains. So, um, there you have that. But we have, we have an epidemic. We have a serious problem in the world today, and it's community. We don't have community. But if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, we have to have legit community. In fact, Jesus' commitment to community was his greatest habit. I almost didn't cover community because I wanted to cover some of the other habits, but you can't not cover the habits of Jesus 
And you, uh, you can't cover the habits of Jesus and not talk about community. Because throughout the entire ministry, he had relationship with people around him. Nearly his entire ministry was done in the context of community. And Jesus and disciples and being with his disciples and what he did with his disciples and taught his disciples and how he was encouraging and teaching and fixing and all of the things that went into discipling the disciples are mentioned. Disciple, the word disciple is mentioned more than anything else in the Gospels. And that's the whole point of being a follower of Jesus Christ is to be a disciple. And if that's our whole goal, our whole motive, our whole mission is to be disciples and to become like Jesus Christ, we can't ignore the one vehicle that Jesus used to make disciples. So the call to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus Christ is a call to be in community. Luke chapter 6, verse 12 through 15. Got a lot of scripture from the Gospels I want to read today as we go through this. Luke chapter 6, verse 12 through 15, we covered this a while ago in our Luke series. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. There's one of the habits we covered. Jesus spent all night praying to God, and what he was praying about is incredibly significant. When the morning came, verse 13, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. So Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the whole night praying to God about the 12 people that he was going to choose to live in the closest relationship with him. And he chose Simon, whom he named Peter, and Simon's brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, who wished his name wasn't Judas, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Jesus spent all night praying to choose a community, and that community spent the next year and a half to two years, day in and day out, with Jesus, doing life with Jesus. It was a primary vehicle. The community was the tool for discipleship. It was in the context of this community of the 12 and in the smaller groups within the community of the three and other groups that he probably had and conversations he had within the group, groups within the group, that he did his discipleship. Luke chapter 10, while you're in Luke, scroll over a couple of chapters to Luke chapter 10. Um, and, and this is a great passage to look at if you're wanting to know a little bit more about the disciples at large, not the smaller group of the 12, but he had other disciples who followed him. Luke chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out, how? Two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. These are 72 of Jesus' disciples that had been following him for a while. So he already knew them, and he chose 72 of the people out of, that had been following him to go out two by two, not one by one. You would think that if Jesus wanted to cover more territory, he could cover 144 
cities by sending people out one by one instead of just 72, but he sent them out two by two. We can't be followers of Jesus in isolation. Jesus didn't send people out by themselves. John chapter 6, verse 1 through 12. John chapter 6 is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Gospels. It's a a challenging passage and talks about Jesus feeding the 5,000, which is where we're going to look at today, and what happened as a result of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and people rejecting him and all of that great stuff. But John chapter 6, verse 1 through 12. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples, trying to get away from the crowds. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, so he left the crowd, and then the crowd followed him out onto the mountainside. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. It's an incredibly important verse to pay attention to. Jesus, when he saw the great crowd coming toward him, looked at Philip, And having in his mind what he was going to do, asked Philip a question. His question was not anything related to what he was going to do. He was was trying to get Philip to think for himself. How are we going to solve this problem, Philip? we got all these people out here on the hillside, farther away from towns, and they can get back in in a reasonable amount of time to get food, and we have to feed them. It's our responsibility to feed them. Where are we going to get food for everybody, Philip? Philip answered, It would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. This is Andrew, not Simon Peter. Andrew says, Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. If you were responsible for people who had followed you all the way out into the countryside, and you had 5,000 men plus women and children, so potentially 15 to 25,000 people out here in the countryside following you, and they have nowhere to go to get food. Now they're going to be hungry if you don't feed them. You have a pretty big problem on your hands, right? It's a pretty big situation that you're facing. What are we going to do? How are we going to feed these people? And Jesus, in the midst of this difficult situation, 
used it as an opportunity to teach his disciples. I used to read the story and just pay attention to the story and the big event that happened, but the, but the real focus, I think, of this story is not on the people who were fed or the miracle that Jesus did. It is on Jesus' interaction with the disciples. See, Jesus could have performed this miracle in a way where everyone in, in their groups just had a magic pile of bread and fish show up, right? I mean, if you're feeding 5,000 people, it's a miracle, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that you're just, you know, you could do it probably however he wanted, and he could have chosen to do it a different way. But he didn't. He chose to involve the disciples in the process. That's important. At the end, the end of the story is even more remarkable, I think. Because there were leftovers, which is astounding. You feed 5,000 people plus women and children out of a few small loaves and a couple of fish, and there's leftovers, 12 baskets full of leftovers, way more than they, than they started with. Jesus could have easily chosen to, to let those leftovers just go home with the people. Take it home. Take it home with you as you go home. But what did Jesus do? He had the 12 pick them up. Jesus had the 12 go around to 15,000 people and pick up the leftovers. Why? To teach them. He was teaching them and training them. And I think searing this moment into their brain, into their memory, something they would never forget as they were involved in the miracle. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41, a few pages over to your left. If you're using a Bible, then if you're using an app, it's different. But Mark chapter 4, verse uh, 35, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. So Jesus and the 12 are in a boat. They're heading out across the lake, and there's other boats going with them. He's got a big group of people following them. And so out here on the lake is a whole squadron of boats, and a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, not worried at all. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up dealt with the problem. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Then he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. Jesus used this fearful situation to teach his disciples about faith. He could have just calmed the waves and went back to sleeping in the boat, right? But he stopped and said, what's wrong with you? Why are you so afraid? He could have just as easily waited until the next day to debrief the situation when everyone was well rested and not in a panic, but he did it in the moment instead of waiting helping them remember and learn the lesson about faith. Luke chapter 22, 
verse 24 through 30. We've covered this one already in this series, but it's important in this context. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Well, it's the one who's at the table that's greater, right? I mean, that's how it worked, especially in that day. If you have a seat at the table and you're being served, you're greater than the one who is serving you. Is it not the one who is at the table? Then he says, and look, this is in the context of the Last Supper where Jesus stopped and he washed the disciples' feet. And as he's talking about serving, he's actually serving. As he's talking about you know, that it's not the ones who have the position and authority that lorded over the ones who are under them, he's talking about what he's doing and setting an example. I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And he's serving. The king of kings is serving the ones he came to save. And I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me. So that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus used community to teach. He used discipleship to teach. Here he's using community to set the standard for the kind of community his community was going to be. We're a community of servants, not a community of people fighting over who's the greatest. Our, our mode of operation, our modus operandi is to serve. That is the base core level function of what we do as a community. And he set the example by serving. Oh, and then, by the way, he reminded them of the greater vision, the bigger picture of the kingdom, talking about, oh yeah, this is, this is, what, you're, this is what you're inheriting. This is what you're going to be a part of. This is the inheritance that's coming to you as being a part of the kingdom. You not only get a seat at the table, but this is about the kingdom of God. Is it possible that the reason that we struggle to mature as disciples and, and followers of Jesus Christ is because we're not really committed to community the same way the disciples were? I have a hard time committing to community in that same way. I want to keep my time. I want to keep my schedule. I don't want anyone to interfere on, on the way I live my life. And at the same time, I think what has suffered as a result is my relationship with God. Church attendance is important, but community is not the same thing as church attendance. Uh, church attendance. We aren't a community the same way in this environment as we are in other environments. It was important to Jesus to go to synagogue. It should be important to us to come to church and worship together as one body, one body, one unit, one voice. 
But community was the way Jesus lived his all-day, everyday life. Are we doing that? Consequently, we're going to be dividing up the farm into one-acre parcels and inviting everyone to move out and live in the commune with us. I'm just kidding. How do we, so how do we do that? We have to start asking ourselves, and maybe you're asking yourselves this question already. Okay, so how do we do this? What does this look like? Well, community is not the same thing as friendship. We need to understand that. Friends are important, but we have to ask ourselves, are my friends a part of my Christian community? Are my friends helping me walk with Christ in the same way and on the same Jesus journey? That doesn't mean we can't have friends who aren't a part of our Jesus community, our Christian community, our Jesus journey together. We, that doesn't mean that we can't have friends who exist outside of our 6-8 church. But are we in relationship, in community with people who are going on the same journey that we are going on and helping us walk and be discipled and become like Christ together? We ought to be. We really, we really need to be. By the way, Jesus didn't put his group together uh, based on affinity. We're going to cover that this week as we get into the devotionals. The group, the 12 that Jesus put together, um, would not have been friends in real life. Many of them were actually diametrically opposed to one another. For example, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. We'll get into those definitions a little bit later this week. But we don't grow up in Christ, we don't become like Christ by being around people we like being around all the time. We don't become like Christ by being around the people it's easy to be around and easy to love. We learn to love unconditionally by having to love without conditions. Friendship is kind of a conditional love, right? We're friends with the people we want to be friends with because we connect with them and relate to them on a certain level and so it's easy to be around them and that's not a bad thing. But unconditional love, agape love, the kingdom love, is actually quite different than that. And we have to learn how to love without conditions. Loving the people you already love is conditional love. You already love them. There's already a condition that exists. So how can we do this practically? First, I think one of the most difficult things we have faced as a church is the expectation on church leadership to facilitate and force biblical community. There is an expectation on the leaders of the church to create the environments and the opportunities and the systems and the structures for us to have community in the church family. And while we have done those kinds of things, we will continue to do those kinds of things. We will do our best to facilitate church community as we as do the best we possibly can to do that. Don't wait and expect us to do that before you move. There are people around in, you, in, in the group, in the room right now that you could just take your own initiative and 
start to get to know on a deeper level. You can learn from their walk and they can learn from your walk. And together, as you get together and you talk about Jesus and walking with Jesus together, you will learn things about following Jesus that you didn't know. And you will undoubtedly learn that there are things about that person that makes it hard to love, and they will learn that there are things about you that makes it hard to love you, and you will learn to love one another unconditionally, and you will grow up in Christ as a result. So take the initiative on your own shoulders to build relationships with your church family. Don't just wait for us to do it for you. Second, we're going to talk about this this week, how a part of Jesus' community, the way he related to his disciples, was blessing and encouraging. He had a habit of blessing and encouraging his disciples. And so a way for us to develop Christian community is to bless and to encourage one another. This, by the way, is why we do Workplace, our online community. It's not for my benefit, by the way, although I do benefit from it as being a part of this community. I get a lot out of being a part of Workplace. I get a, a lot out of, out of the posts that people put up on there when they're learning something like, like Shad put up last night in and, and the group. And when someone puts up you know, an aha moment and something that they learned as they were going through their Bible study or their reading over the course of this last week, or when someone puts up a prayer request or, or someone shares something that they're struggling with and someone is transparent and honest, honest and vulnerable, we get out, a lot out of that. I get a lot out of that, but the point of workplace is to facilitate, to kind of be a conduit for engagement in our community throughout the week when we're not in one another's physical presence. Part of how we change the handout, let me really quickly digress. The handout that we passed out at the beginning of the series called Stories, maybe some of you remember that, maybe some of you put it in your Bible and haven't looked at it since, maybe some of you threw it away when you got home. But there's, there's the Stories acronym that I put together that kind of entails all the different ways that we change, all the things that are needed to change and become a different person. The S is for stories we believe. A lot of us are believing wrong stories. We have false narratives in our mind that we're believing, and, and we need to replace those with God's truth. We need to be in God's story to rewrite our story. So stories we believe, the T is for training. It doesn't just happen by accident. We actually have to learn how to do it, and we have to be with somebody who has further down the road that can teach us. It happens over time. It doesn't happen overnight. We have to be committed over time. We have to have resolve. That's what the R stands for. We have to be resolved to the change. The I is for intentional community. We have to be in intentional community with people who are trying to grow and go on the same walk that we are going on. And as we are in this intentional community, we sharpen one another like iron sharpens iron. Iron sharpens iron. That's how we say it in Southern Ohio. Iron, iron sharpens iron. Iron, we played Ironton, Ironton, Ironton in football. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Intentional community. That's what the I is for. And the E is for environment. The environment that we are in on a day in, day out basis 
And a big part of that environment is this little device that we are obsessed with in our pockets has a great effect on who we are as a person. Your home life has an effect on who you are as a person. Your neighbors, your relationships in, in your community, the people that you work with, the way you act at work, the people you're surrounded with at work and how they act and treat you and how you treat one another, all of that has an effect on your relationship with God. And the S is for struggle. Change is never easy. We almost always have to go through struggle to change. But I mentioned that to say intentional community and environment are key in changing. And while I know it probably feels like I'm harping on get on workplace, get on workplace, get on workplace. The only reason I want you to be on there is to help you. The only reason I want you to be in community is to help you grow in your relationship with God. That's the only reason I want you to do these things is to help you grow up in your relationship with God instead of coming back week after week after week on Sundays and feeling like you just failed because you didn't have the right system. You didn't have everything set up around you in the right way. We want to be a community that blesses one another and encourages one another. And it's my dream that when we gather on Sundays or when we're gathered virtually on workplace or we're gathered over meals throughout the course of the week or we're having coffee with one another, however it is that we're gathering together, that we would just become this encouraging force that encourages one another and lifts up one another and speaks life into one another instead of complaining and negativity and tearing one another down or tearing others down or whatever it is that we do. How would it change your life if you committed to blessing and encouraging one another on a daily basis? Last one is to serve alongside your church family. It's a great opportunity to get to know someone when you're working shoulder, shoulder to shoulder with someone. And as we've already talked about, we are a give over get community. We don't come to church to be served, but to serve. We come to a worship service to serve, not so that the worship team can serve us, but so that all of us together can serve God in worship. And when it comes to the ministries of the church, we're not coming to get served, but we want to serve. And so it's a great opportunity when you're serving alongside someone in a ministry to get to know someone. So if we want to change, we need to be more intentional about it. We need to be more intentional about being in a community that supports, echoes, and encourages us on that path. Are you consistently around people who echo your journey? Are, are they echoing? Are they repeating? Are they reinforcing what you're learning? Are they supporting you? Are they encouraging you along the way? And sometimes we might need to change our environment to do that. One is too small a number to achieve greatness. That's a John Maxwell quote. I love John Maxwell. The only thing our isolated and individualistic culture has ever gotten us is a higher rate of anxiety, depression, and suicide. That's the fruit of individualism. If you want to grow, if you want to change, if you want a different life than you currently have, it will only come as we commit to being a like-minded community and being in like-minded community. 
You cannot become a disciple in isolation. It is impossible to become a disciple by yourself. You can't be on mission by yourself. Jesus didn't send out disciples on their own. He sent them out two by two. It's too hard to be in mission by yourself. See, it's easy for us not to be on mission when we're doing everything in isolation because I don't have anyone in my life holding me accountable to it or holding me up to a higher standard or, or sharing with me and encouraging me as I go out and live on mission. But it's hard to not be on mission when I'm in community with others who are living it out. If I'm around people who are consistently living out mission on a regular basis, it's harder for me to not be on mission. You cannot grow yourself. You cannot grow by yourself. A quote, um, I can't remember who said it, but character doesn't develop in isolation. Your character is developed in community. If you feel like you haven't grown in a while, you probably need to do an audit on your relationships. Are you in relationship with like-minded Christ followers? In fact, the way your physical body was designed was actually for relationships. You have eyes, ears, and a mouth. You can see people, you can hear people, and you can talk to people. If we were designed for isolation, we wouldn't need those things. And your brains are wired for community. Your brains are wired to get rewarded with dopamine when you are around other humans. Just for being here this morning, you're getting hits of dopamine in your brain. That's awesome. Good. You get hits of dopamine in your brain when you are appropriately intimate with one another. Emphasis on appropriately intimate with one another. We don't need to be doing any of that sloppy wet kiss stuff as a church, but handshakes and pats on the back and hugs are totally acceptable if they're comfortable with it, and doing so actually builds your bond in the community, and that's how God designed you. We're not supposed to be, 6-8 church isn't supposed to be that thing you do on Sundays. It's supposed to be how we live our lives. Any questions? All right, before we, before we close, in the devotionals this coming week, we're going to be covering blessing and encouraging and how Jesus blessed Peter. Um, we're going to cover some of the unconventional pairings. Um, we're going to uh, look at how Jesus called people up to a higher standard in his community. Um, some of this is going to get combined because I have too much. How Jesus prayed for his community not to fail when they were going to face temptation. Um, talked about making disciples. Jesus um, even used his arrest to teach Peter as a teaching moment. When he's being arrested, he's teaching. Um, Jesus taught and treated his community as a family. We're going to look at that in Luke chapter 8, who are my mother and brothers, and then some of the other things Jesus taught his disciples we might work in as well. So all of that's going to be coming in the, uh, in the podcast and in the community on, uh, on Workplace. But an illustration and the reason this board is up here. A couple of people were out walking their Jack Russell Terrier, Charlie, in the mountains. A squirrel walked past and Charlie broke free, pulling his leash behind him. And just that quickly, the couple realized Charlie was gone. They stopped and asked some hikers if they had seen Charlie, but no luck. 
They stopped by the ranger station and asked if anyone had found Charlie, but they hadn't. They called their Bible study back home and asked them to pray for Charlie. They called the local radio station to ask them to announce that Charlie was missing. This was no small matter. There were coyotes in the hills. Through the course of the day, the community mobilized. A biker rode through the hills calling Charlie's name. Rangers, park rangers, drove the mountain roads looking for the dog. Members of the Bible study actually drove in to help search. As the sun was setting, it looked like the dog might be gone. Then they got a call. Campers had found Charlie hiding underneath a car that was parked exactly where they had been parked earlier that same morning. The couple described this as the most profound experience of community they've ever had. What if the church were were united around the search for lost people in the same way? In the book of Acts, the community gathered and united for the mission of reaching a lost world, and it was the most profound experience of community they ever had. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Up here we've got some cards, different colors. Pick your favorite color. Color. I've been told by my wife that I say the word color wrong. Collar was how we said it growing up. What's your favorite collar? Collar? And that's apparently something on your shirt. But uh, we've got these cards. One side has a, a white piece taped to it. So coming up, we've got the uh, Transformation Sunday, and then we've also got the next Sunday, Dream Sunday. What we'd like for you to do is to take a card and put your name on the front, on the white piece, on the white side, put your name. Put your name on the white side, and then on the back side, write somebody that you're going to be praying for. And this is our prayer. We pray for God to give us an opportunity to invest in a relationship with them. And then out of that relationship, invite them to either Transformation Sunday or to Dream Sunday. So put your name on the card and then just on the back and put it, when you put it up here on the board, put it with your name out. So it's really just kind of between you and God who's on the back. We're not going to come around here and peek at the back of these. But put your name on the front and then on the back. Just take a minute and, and, uh, and write who you might be able to. I'll just pass them around, grab one as they're going around. Who you might be able to invest in the relationship with and invite to one of those Sundays so that they can hear God's story. So that they can hear about what is possible in the kingdom. What is possible if you give your life to Christ? Or on Dream Sunday, we're not going to be making a hard gospel presentation. We're not going to be making a hard altar call or anything like that. 
we're just going to be talking about people who want to grow, people who want to change. And maybe that's one of the people. And by coming and being a part of that Sunday and being a part of the community, which is crucial for any kind of change in your life, you need a community around you if you want to change. And maybe by coming and being a part of our community who, who supports them in the change they want to make, they start to experience Christ. And maybe by rubbing shoulders with us and being here on a regular basis, they start to experience Christ in our gatherings and they want more. Who, could you, who do you have in your life? Maybe someone you work with. Maybe it's one of your neighbors. Maybe, you know, I don't know who it could be, but just someone that you could invest in a relationship with and then invite to one of those Sundays. And maybe, maybe you invest and you invest and you invest and you, and you get to one of those Sundays and you feel like you were just, it's not quite right. Well, then wait till the next time or wait until a later Sunday or whatever it is. But I bet we all have someone in our life right now that God wants to reach through us. And he's put you and he's put me in their lives for the purpose of being that magnetic draw that through him in us, through Christ in us, he draws people to himself. And who might God want to draw through you over the next month? We've got a month before August 25th or so. So it's a, a good amount of time to be praying and seeking God and developing those relationships. And if you have someone during this song as we sing together, we'd invite you to come forward and put that card up on the bulletin board and we'll all start praying together as one community, joining together, participating together, rallying together behind the mission that God has given to us all. Not one person out on mission, but all of us rallying together on the same mission Pulling, pulling all of our resources and all of our talents and all of our strengths and all of our giftedness together as one community, one body for the purpose of seeking and saving the lost. What would it look like if we just all partnered together in that way and we joined together to reach someone and, and you're starting, you're praying for someone and the person that, that you want to reach could actually benefit from sitting down with someone else in our church and maybe the first invitation instead of inviting them to church is to actually invite them to a coffee with this other person who might be able to help them in the situation they're in and we could all start to partner together and build relationships with one another as we seek and save the lost. What would it look like if we partnered in the same way that whole community did to chase that dog, if we actually partnered in chasing after people who are eternally lost and God wants to draw into his kingdom? I think it would be amazing. Let's stand together and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this community. I thank you for this family. I thank you for the way we already are knit together. I thank you for the ways that you have already deepened relationships, that even over the last year that you have worked in us to draw us closer together to one another, that, that as, we're, as we're one anothering, loving one another and, and lifting up one another and carrying one another's burdens, that you've actually deepened the roots of our relationships with one another. Father, I pray uh, to an even greater, higher, crazy, uh, psychotic extent that we would become this level of community that you had in mind, that, that we would just stand out as a community that radically loves one another without condition, and that we would just have this deep desire, this deep passion to, to want to live out the love God is pouring into us 
as we know him more daily, as God pours his love, that we, that we have this intense passion and desire to pour that love out in relationship and covenantal community. I pray, Father, for any fears that we might have that would keep us from stepping out in faith, that you would address those. That anything the enemy would use to, to make us think we don't deserve community or any lies about how imperfect we are, that we just, you know, we can't be in this relationship or that, that those would be dealt with. And that you would set us free from those false narratives that we've believed and start to replace them with the narrative that we are loved, that we are your children, that in Christ we are all unified together as one family. And I pray, Father, more and more, let that be a hallmark of our church at 6-8. In Jesus' name, amen.